What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Thursday, October 12th, 2023. Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago joins us now. Professor Mearsheimer, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time and your uh, insight. You are, uh, of course, a world-renowned uh, political scientist and theorist and historian, but you're also a graduate of West Point and spent some time in the United States Air Force. Do you have any idea, any analysis that you can share with us as to how the Israeli um, intelligence services and military had such a spectacular failure, such a catastrophic perfect storm uh, last Saturday? My sense, Judge, is that the Israelis uh, expected an attack at some point uh, in the near future. I mean, the fact that uh, Hamas attacked Israel, that in itself is no great surprise. Uh, in fact, Hamas has attacked Israel on numerous occasions uh, over the past uh, two decades. So this is no great surprise. I think what's a great surprise is the scope and the nature of the attack. The Israelis had no idea that Hamas could carry off an operation of this magnitude and inflict this much death and destruction uh, on Israel. It, it was a complete shock to them. And the truth is, it was, I think, a complete shock to almost everybody who's been following this conflict. And so it's not the fact that Israel was attacked that's the great surprise. It's the nature of the attack that was the great surprise. And by the way, they were completely unprepared for what happened. There's just no question about that. They really did get caught with their pants down. Well, the lack of preparedness uh, will have extraordinary, I think, political consequences in Israel. It's hard to believe that Prime Minister Netanyahu's prime ministership for lack of a better phrase or word, can survive this. Yeah, I think it's analogous to the 1973 war when Golda Meir was the prime minister of Israel. Uh, and Israel was surprised then as it has been surprised now. And Golda Meir survived in the short term because what happens in the short term is you have a rally around the flag effect. And, and she benefited it 
benefited from that back then and Netanyahu's benefiting from that now. But once this settles down and comes to something of an end, uh, then there will be recriminations. And it is, as you say, hard to imagine that Netanyahu survives this. Uh, some of uh, our guests, uh, all of whom you know, uh, have suggested their, their views have coalesced around two areas for these failures. One is arrogance, uh, a belief that we're stronger, smarter, richer, better, so we can't possibly be breached. And the other is a peculiar, so this is a relatively new phenomenon, peculiar uh, reliance on AI rather than on uh, human intelligence. Uh, do you have any, any views on either of those issues or either of those explanations as a rational basis for the lack of preparedness? And, and I'm sorry, the question's way too long. The lack of preparedness is also military. Uh, because of the way they were spread so thin to concentrate on this um, celebration of a religious festival in the desert and left huge gaps in other areas. Well, I don't think it was so much AI. And I, I do think there is a certain amount of arrogance among the Israelis. Uh, but I think the key here has to do uh, with, let's call it the conception uh, of what was likely to happen that the Israelis had in their head. When the Agronaut Commission studied the Israeli failure in 1973, they blamed it on the conception, the picture that the Israelis had in their head as to what an Egyptian attack across the canal would look like. They had the wrong conception. And as I said to you in my initial comments, I think the Israelis had the wrong conception in their heads about what the Palestinians attacking out of Gaza could do to them. And this is why they were so completely surprised. Again, it was the fact that, that Hamas attacked Israel is not a great surprise. And they thought that if it happened, they could handle it. But what they missed was that the uh, Hamas attackers had a clever strategy, one that they just didn't anticipate, and they were not prepared to counter. So the conception, in my opinion, is the problem here, as it was in 73. How did Hamas uh, come about? How did it come into existence? Well, it was originally the Islamic Brotherhood uh, in Israel. And uh, after the first intifada in the late 1980s, uh, it began to get radicalized. And amazingly, the Israelis over time, especially hard nosed Israelis who were opposed to the two-state solution. Like Benjamin oh, Netanyahu. Yes, yes. It, it's quite amazing here. They liked Hamas because they knew that Hamas had extremist views on a two-state solution. In other words, no two-state solution. And people on the right in Israel wanted no two-state solution. So they, in effect, the Israelis allied to some extent, we have to be careful with the language here, but they allied to some extent with Hamas to undermine the Palestinian authority, first under Arafat, then under Mahmoud Abbas, because they were interested in a two-state solution. So in a very important way, Israel has been willing to live with Hamas, right? And this is the reason they didn't view Hamas as that great a threat. Because to some extent, to some limited extent, again, we have to choose our words carefully here, 
Hamas was a partner with Israel in undermining the Palestinian Authority, which was interested in the two-state solution. Is this a um, uh, intellectual, academic, political partner, or was there a financial relationship? Did Israel at any point in time fund Hamas? I know of no evidence. It may be the case. I think that most of Hamas's funding comes from outside, from countries like Iran, Qatar, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, I don't think the Israelis felt any need to do that. They might have done that if they thought it was necessary. Again, the Israelis viewed Hamas as useful for undermining a two-state solution, which people like Netanyahu and many other Israelis have been interested in doing for a long time. What is the relationship between Hamas and uh, the Palestinian Authority headed by Mahmoud Abbas? It's terrible. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, is interested in the two-state solution. Hamas is not. Uh, and uh, uh, they just, you know, have been uh, loggerheads uh, since at least the election of 2006. Uh, and, uh, but I would imagine that this event uh, has forced them to come together. I would imagine that there's a show of unity among the Palestinians in the same way that there's a show of unity among the Israelis at this point in time. But how this plays out over time is very hard to say. Is it fair to say that Hamas is not the government of Gaza, that the Palestinian Authority is, but Hamas is some aspect of Gazan society that the Palestinian Authority can't control, like the drug gangs in Mexico, which can't be controlled, but they're not the government of Mexico, but they're not subject to the government of Mexico either? No, I think it's quite clear that Hamas controls the Gaza Strip. They govern the Gaza Strip, and that uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, controls uh, the West Bank. You want to remember that the last time you had an election was in 2006, and the Israelis warned us, don't hold that election, because the Israelis anticipated that Hamas would win, and then Hamas would have influence not only in Gaza, but in the West Bank as well. The Americans didn't listen to the Israelis. We held the elections. Hamas won. We then undermined the results of the election. Uh, which we could do in the West Bank. And we basically installed uh, Mahmoud Abbas there and the Palestinian Authority. But we couldn't do that in Gaza. And the end result is that Hamas is in control in Gaza. I want to uh, play a clip for you of uh, Admiral Kirby, uh, the official spokesperson for the uh, President's National Security Council, declining to ask uh, or to answer a question about whether or not um, there was foreknowledge uh, of this event, this catastrophic uh, assault uh, by the Egyptian intelligence services. The, the tape is actually of a show on Fox News. My friend and neighbor and former uh, colleague, Neil Cavuto, uh, has on set with him uh, Mike McFall, the chair of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, who disagrees with Kirby and states outright that he knows from what he's been briefed that the Egyptians did warn uh, the Israelis. Take a listen. Can you speak to the reports that Israel was warned by Egypt? I can't. McCall from Foreign Affairs made that allegation this morning, saying that that was something that uh, members were told in on the, Intelli or on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So 
has that been discussed at all, or is that something you're looking into? I can't speak to specific intelligence matters. Again, there will be a time to, to look back at this, as we always do, and we will. Right now, we're sharpening the intelligence gathering and cooperation and sharing with Israel, as we should, since they're involved in active operations, and we're making sure that they get the tools they need. All right, so your intelligence might be saying one thing. Chairman John Kirby might be holding cards close to his vest. His and at the White House says another. Who's right? Well, we do know the Egyptian intelligence did uh, uh, refer this to Israel. Uh, and I can't get into any more depth than well, He must have been the recipient as the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee of some intelligence briefing. And then he publicly revealed some of what he learned, put aside whether that's a breach uh, or not. But if the Egyptians told the Israelis, did the Israelis ignore it? Everything depends on what the Egyptians told the Israelis. Did they tell them that it was going to happen in a few days' time? Uh, or did they tell them that over the next month or so, there may be an attack? That's one big issue. The more important issue, which gets back to my earlier set of comments, is did the Egyptians tell them what the scope and size and magnitude of this operation would be? Did they tell them uh, that this was going to be an unprecedented attack that was going to have devastating consequences for Israel? I don't think. I'd bet a lot of money that they never said that. Uh, and if they had said that, then the Israelis would have paid serious attention. Right. But just telling the Israelis that Hamas is going to attack is not that big a deal because what the Israelis are going to expect is a few rockets and maybe a few individuals trying to breach the fence. And their view is they can deal with that. What they couldn't deal with was this clever strategy that they just didn't anticipate and nobody else anticipated. And I would bet that includes the Egyptians. I want your uh, opinion, uh, Professor Mearsheimer, on an interesting analysis of this uh, by uh, Russian President uh, Putin, who, as you can imagine, uh, in, in a statement that he made, which we'll run in just a minute, uh, was cri is critical of American foreign policy in the Middle East, but his critique is very interesting. Unfortunately, we can see a sharp deterioration of the situation in the Middle East. I think that many will agree with me that this is a clear example of the failure of the policy of the United States in the Middle East, which tried to monopolize the resolution of the conflict, but unfortunately wasn't concerned with finding compromises acceptable to both sides. On the contrary, it promoted its own ideas about how this should be done, put pressure on both sides, first on one side, then on the other, every time without taking into account the fundamental interests of the Palestinian people, bearing in mind, first of all, the need to implement the UN Security Council decision on creation of an independent, sovereign Palestinian state. Is he right? <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Yes, uh, I think that what Putin is saying is something that many Americans and many Israelis have been saying for a long time that the only way out of this mess is the two-state solution. And that means the Palestinians have to have their own state in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, and it has to live side by side in peace with Israel. The United States has been theoretically interested in a two-state solution for a long time, because most American policymakers, and this certainly includes people like Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Barack Obama understood the importance of getting a two-state solution, but they were unwilling to push hard enough to coerce the Israeli leadership into accepting a two-state solution. And this is in large part because of domestic politics in the United States. Pro-Israel forces in the United States were opposed to putting pressure on Israel. And this includes many people who thought a two-state solution was the right outcome, but they just mm. want to, they just did not want us coercing Israel. So I think what Putin is saying, and again, it's not just Putin, this is a commonplace argument inside Israel and inside the United States, is that it was, the ne it was necessary for Israel's good and for America's good for right. us to get tough with Israel and push for a two-state solution. Because the alternative, Andrew, is that you end up with a greater Israel, which is what you have now. And you want to remember that there are over 7 million Palestinians inside greater Israel. Correct. And there's, there's, there's 9.5 million uh, people in Israel itself. Israel is the size of New Jersey, and its population is the size of New Jersey. It gets a lot more money from the federal government than, uh, than New Jersey uh, does. I want to segue over to uh, Ukraine uh, while we have you, uh, Professor Mearsheimer. Uh, is Ukraine finished? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that uh, Admiral Kirby's comments that uh, we are not going to continue funding Ukraine uh, for the long term basically means uh, that they're finished. I mean, is everybody understands if we pull the plug on the Ukrainians, they're doomed. They don't have the weaponry. They don't have the financial resources uh, to continue uh, this fight. And, and the Russians will roll over them. Uh, President Biden and others have made the argument that we're behind the Ukrainians until the end. We're not going to bail on them. Well, we're bailing on them now. And it's hard for me to see, especially in light of the failed counteroffensive, how the Ukrainians don't collapse. We want. I want to play for you two clips from Admiral Kirby. You've summarized both of them nicely, but the picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, in the first one, he repeats the mantra of President Biden for as long as it takes. In the second one, which is just two days ago, he says, "Wow, we can't freeze aid." Quote: When we're at the end of our rope. 
What do you mean by that? As long as they need. What do you mean by that? What win winning looks like for me in, uh, in Ukraine? Well, as long as it takes means as, as long as it takes, and it means that I'm unable uh, to give you a date certain on the calendar uh, for you know when uh, you know when uh, that support won't be necessary anymore. It's necessary now. It's going to be necessary in coming weeks and months for certain. And we want to make sure that we are meeting the need as best we can uh, for Ukraine. And you had what does winning look like? President Zelensky gets determine gets to determine uh, what victory looks like. But in the near term, we've we've got appropriations and authorities for both Ukraine and for Israel. But you don't want to be trying to bake in long-term support when you're at the end of the rope. And uh, in Ukraine, on the Ukraine funding, we're we're coming near to the end of the rope. I mean, this is truly a remarkable and astonishing statement from him. We're coming near to the end of the rope in light of the number of times that he, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and the President himself have used that phrase that the questioner asked about for as long as it takes. It actually kind of turns your stomach to see this. I mean, as I've argued from the beginning, and I know you agree with me, we've led the Ukrainians down the primrose path. Yes. Absolutely horrible. I mean, we pushed this country into this war. Uh, we're principally responsible for it because of our efforts to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. Uh, and we encouraged the counteroffensive. We forced them to attack week after week when they were suffering enormous casualties. And now when they're in really deep trouble, we're pulling the plug on them. Uh, it's just, it turns your stomach. It's really horrible. Uh, how, how do you see this ending? I mean, if we are literally at the end of our rope, uh, and we are going to suspend or dial back aid to Ukraine. And he's got a lot of neocons in both parties in Congress who, who want more money for uh, Ukraine. It'd be hard for me to imagine him vetoing it, but we'll see what happens domestically, politically here once the House of Representatives gets, um, uh, gets in order. But what kind of an off, let's talk politically, what kind of an off-ramp uh, is this? After promising aid for as long as it takes, after spending $100 billion theoretically borrowed from the Chinese, interest paid for in created digital cash by the Fed, how could this possibly be justified politically summarily to depart? I don't know. I mean, it's just very hard to figure out what's the best policy for the Ukrainians at this point. I mean, one could argue that they would be better off just going to negotiations right now, doing everything they can to cut their ties with the West before the West uh, cuts off the funding, because they would probably get a better deal now than if they continue to fight. I mean, the truth is, as you pointed out, we're going to continue to give weapons and money to the Ukrainians for at least a while. And that will encourage them to continue fighting. And the question is, will they be better off, let's say, a year from now if they continue fighting and then try to cut a deal versus cutting a deal now? And my sense uh, is that they would be better off cutting a deal now. They're not going to get a good deal. This is a disaster for the Ukrainians. Uh, but given the situation they're in, it's almost impossible. Maybe it is impossible to tell a story that has a happy ending for them. Right. 
before we go, just to go back to where we started, I mean, how does that end? Does Gaza get decimated into a desert? Uh, does Hamas win by staying alive and in control and underground? Uh, does Bibi Netanyahu go to jail over this? Well, I think this is very hard to predict because a lot depends on whether the Israelis go into Gaza with ground forces. There's been a lot of talk about them going into Gaza and tearing the place apart, finding Hamas and eradicating Hamas. But I think the Israelis, this is just a guess, but I think the Israelis have come to realize that this is not a smart idea, that going into Gaza and trying to eliminate uh, uh, Hamas will cause more trouble uh, than it's worth. And then at the end, even if you were to eradicate Hamas, you'll just get a new radicalized group in its place. You're not going to solve the problem with military force. This is a political problem. So one question is, do they go in or do they not go in? But they're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, because if they don't go in, Hamas lives to fight another day for sure. And they're well armed and they're going to continue to cause problems. Uh, then if they don't go in, they bomb uh, Gaza. But this is a total disaster, not only because from a human point of view, from a human rights point of view, just seeing civilians killed is an absolutely horrible thing, but also it does no good strategically. It doesn't solve the problem. It just enrages people inside the Palestinian world, inside the Arab world, and it even loses support over time for Israel in the West. So bombing is no solution either. So the Israelis are really between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I don't know what they do to fix the problem. And this gets well, back to my earlier point that the solution to this was a two-state solution. Right. I have to ask you this because you're so well-regarded internationally. What would you do if Bibi Netanyahu calls you up and says, Professor Mearsheimer, give me your guidance? Well, I I've thought about that question. I would tell him to back off uh, from the bombing as soon as possible uh, and uh, not go further down that road. And I would advise not to go into uh, Gaza. Uh, and I would tell him that what he ought to do and what his colleagues ought to do is reverse gear and uh, or reverse direction and move towards a two-state solution. But he's never going to accept that. And he heads up a governing coalition that includes a number of people who are much further to the right than he is. Right. And if you look at the demographics in Israel over time, right? Uh, this is a country that's going to get more and more hawkish and more and more anti-Palestinian over time. That coupled with the present events makes it almost impossible to see how you get a two-state solution. So I think I could give him that advice. And even if he were willing to listen to me, which he wouldn't be, he couldn't execute it because the politics inside Israel no longer facilitate a two-state solution. That train has left the station. Professor John Mearsheimer, always a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for your insight and for your time. Much appreciated by the audience and by me. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Judge. Of course. More as we get it, uh, Matt Ho on who's killing whom. Uh, at four o'clock Eastern. Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.